Good evening. My name is Mark Allen. I head the uh, Department of Indian Subcontinental Studies and uh, the Buddhist Progr Studies Program. Um, welcome tonight, and uh, I'm very pleased to, uh, to welcome Professor Richard Solomon from the University of Washington, Seattle, um, who is here for an extended period of t two months. Um, the, you know, the core of his visit, he's delivering a series of lectures, um, eight lectures, and then tonight is the Sydney Ideas Lecture. Um, Professor Solomon is the sixth holder of the, the University Buddhist Education Foundation uh, Visiting Professorship in Buddhist Studies. Um, this professorship was established by the university at the University of Sydney at the School of Languages and Cultures um, through the very generous um, donation of the University Buddhist Education Foundation um, in 2009. And the purpose of this, this funding was to bring a prominent international scholar working in Buddhist studies to the University of Sydney to um, expose academics and students and the general public to current trends in uh, Buddhist studies, um, to you know, this general lecture, so aimed at a wider audience, but also then more specifically um, uh, lectures for some of our students and academic staff, such as this one on inscriptions, and sometimes also workshops looking at actually reading texts and inscriptions. Um, so apart from tonight's lecture, as I said, Professor Solomon is delivering a series of lectures on Fridays, which you're all welcome to attend. Um, the title is Recovering the History of Indian Buddhism from Inscriptions. Uh, this is mostly on Friday, one lecture I can't remember the date is on a Tuesday for various reasons, and there's some flyers down the front here if you would like, or if uh, you can email me for details about that. Um, the U University Buddhist Education Foundation has been one of our most generous donors. They, apart from this um, visiting professorship, they funded in the past a five-year lectureship in, in Buddhist studies, uh, Indo-Tibetan Buddhist studies. They funded... Um, uh, Pali Prize, uh, teaching of second year Pali and donations to the library and now in combination with the Kinsey Foundation, a Tibetan group and the Ababaldi Foundation uh, I put together just now a five year lectureship in Tibetan Buddhism which will be advertised shortly so uh, beginning next year um, so you know we're very uh, grateful to this organization for really funding Buddhist studies at this university, which otherwise would consist merely of myself. Um, and in response to, um, to you know, the, the external support for Buddhist studies at the university, in 2011, the university itself responded by creating a lectureship in Chinese Buddhism, or East Asian Buddhism, which is occupied by my colleague, Dr. Chiu Ho. Um, now, Professor Solomon is the William and Ruth Gebeding University Professor at the University of Washington in Seattle, where he's taught for over 35 years in the Department of Asian Languages and Literature. He is also the current president of the International Association of Buddhist Studies, which is the, you know, the biggest international organization uh, dealing with the, the, uh, the promotion of Buddhist studies. One of its main functions is to uh, publish a, a prestigious journal and also we host um, a conference every three years. Um, his expertise is in Sanskrit language and literature, Indian Buddhist literature and history, Gandharan studies and Indian epigraphy. And he's also director of the University of Washington Early Buddhist Manuscript Project since its inception in 1996. And that's what uh, the work in, of this project is what he'll be talking about tonight. 
Um, his publications range across a wide um, uh, variety of topics. This includes inscriptions and writing in India. So, you know, most famously, his book uh, is uh, Indian Epigraphy, a Guide to the Study of Inscriptions of, in Sanskrit, Prakrit, and Other Indo-Aryan Languages, which is really the definitive book on the study of Indian um, epigraphy. Um, writing systems of the Indo-Aryan languages, articles and so on in various encyclopedias and publications. Another area is Sanskrit and the Gandhari languages, so for example studies of the ling linguistic features of you know, classic Sanskrit texts like the Mundaka Upanishad or the Ramayana. Um, similarly also, and this is the topic of tonight's talk, which is what he's been working on most recently, which is the new uh, recent discoveries of uh, very old, old manuscripts from ancient Gandhara, which was corresponds to um, present-day Pakistan and Afghanistan, um, and then you know lectures, uh, sorry, publications on Buddhist literature generally. Um, so the topic of tonight's lecture is 20 years and counting: reflections on the study of the oldest Buddhist manuscripts. Please welcome Professor Solomon. Thank you, Mark, for the nice introduction and also for bringing me here. I mean, here and here to Australia. And thanks to everyone for coming out on this fine night. Um, so uh, Mark mentioned that this enterprise, uh, studying the manuscripts I'm going to be introducing tonight, uh, started officially in 1996 when the project, uh, the Early Buddhist Manuscript Project, was uh, instituted at the University of Washington. Uh, so that's why uh, I use the title 20 years. Uh, actually, the story is a little older than that, and it started in uh, 1994, uh, at which uh, time I received a, some photographs, some very nasty-looking, blurry, unclear, white, white, black-and-white photographs of a set of manuscripts uh, which the British Library uh, wanted me to... Um, evaluate, uh, the, they believed, and correctly as it turned out, that they were manuscripts in the Gandhari language, which I'll introduce a little later. Uh, and this is something that I'd done quite a bit of study on in terms of the inscriptions in that language, but uh, manuscripts were something very new and surprising. So um, on the basis of these wretched photographs, I was able to make a, a very preliminary diagnosis, and I confirmed what they, the people at the BL uh, believed that these were, well, first, that they are manuscripts in the Gandhari language and in the Kharoshdi script, and second, that they are genuine. And uh, it was easy enough, even with the poor photographs, to see that, that both of those were, in fact, uh, correct. So uh, I'll just introduce two basic terms briefly and uh, maybe go into them a little more detail later on. The name of the script is Kharoshdi. Um, the name of the language is Gandhari, and they're kind of interchangeable because they always go together. So sometimes people refer, to, people used to refer to these as Kharoshdi scrolls. Now we prefer Gandhari scrolls, but it comes to the same thing. And I don't, most of you aren't probably don't know those terms anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, but uh, briefly, Kharoshdi script was the script used in the area in question, uh, namely northern Pakistan and eastern Afghanistan in antiquity. I'll go into the details later. Uh, Kharoshdi is a script written from right to left. It's a uh, kind of uh, essentially syllabic script uh, derived from 
the eastern branch of the Aramaic uh, script used in ancient Iran. Um, and uh, the language is called Gandhari. Gandhari was originally the local vernacular language spoken in the region in question, that is to say the region called Gandhara. And I'll show you a map in a little while. Um, uh, Gandhari is uh, quite closely related to the Sanskrit and Pali languages, uh, which may put them in a slightly more familiar uh, territory to at least uh, many of you. Uh, so uh, Gandhari was sort of the northwestern cousin or uh, sister language of uh, the Indian languages like Sanskrit and uh, Pali. Um, the language was current. Well, it was used. We have attestation of the Gandhari language in inscriptions and other kinds of documents as early as the 3rd century BC or CE uh, and on into about the 3rd century AD or CE. So uh, it was the dominant form of writing in for at least five or six centuries in this part of the world, uh, after which it completely disappeared and has no uh, descend, no modern descendants and was completely forgotten and had to be uh, deciphered again from inscriptions in the early to middle uh, 19th century. Uh, the dating in question of the manuscripts that I'm talking about are more the latter part of that period according to uh, the latest dates based on partly on carbon-14 dating and partly on other criteria, linguistic and uh, paleographic analysis, uh, we pretty confidently, well, we know for sure that these manuscripts go, some of them go back as far as the first century BC. Uh, some of them are as late as the third, possibly even the fourth century AD. So uh, coming back to this first picture of the manuscript, of one of these manuscripts that I saw uh, 22 years ago now, um, this was, uh, very interesting and exciting for me um, because the Gandhari language up to that time, as I mentioned, was known primarily from Buddhist inscriptions on stone, metal, and so forth. Uh, as far as literature, that is manuscript texts, there had been exactly one previously known and by a curious coincidence, uh, that manuscript had been discovered uh, almost exactly 100 years ago in 1893 in Khotan in Central Asia, uh, a manuscript of the Dharmapada or Dhammapada title that may be familiar to some of you, <coughs> uh, written in the Gandhari language, uh, but that's all there was uh, for literally 100 years or 101 years. So it had been uh, a matter of speculation uh, for all those years whether there was or could be or would be any other manuscripts in this language. Uh, the logical conclusion is you don't have just one manuscript from uh, language or culture. Uh, the assumption or suspicion was that there, this must have been part of a single remnant of a larger, perhaps much larger body of Buddhist literature in the Gandhari language. And so then this letter came to me in 1994 and it immediately became clear that that was in fact the case, that there was more, and as it turns out, much more uh, literature, a large body of literature uh, in this language. Um, the handwritten text uh, on, uh, that accompanied this photograph, which is unfortunately undated, and I can't quite restore the exact date of when this came, which bothers me more than it bothers you, I'm sure. <laughs> a little, uh, I didn't realize the 
what this was all going to lead to at this time. And I've uh, uh, circled the closing words of the letter from the uh, gentleman who was writing this, the first person who had seen these manuscripts in England. Uh, and he said, uh, we, we could be dealing with the most important find for decades, if not this century. Of course, by this century, he means that now long gone century. So whether that's the case or whether that's a little bit hyperbolic, uh, not for me to judge because uh, I can't possibly have uh, a, a impartial perspective on this, but I, I felt, I feel those words were somewhat prophetic at least. Um, so, uh, As you can imagine, I'll just go back for a second, Uh, I was not able to make much from this and and the equally bad other photographs of the materials that were were concerned. Uh, There were some 28 scrolls, uh, more or less, uh, like this. Um, The first thing uh, was uh, to get better uh, views of these pieces. Uh, This was the first stage. These are the conservation staff. in the uh, um, what is the Oriental Department, I think it's called, of the British Library, not the British Museum, as everybody always says, and they get very annoyed when you confuse the two. It's a separate organization. Uh, so these are the uh, conservators, in, again, in, I suppose, 1994, actually unrolling these scrolls. So these scrolls are made of birch bark, and um, if you're familiar, Joe Birch Tree Scroll here, Mark. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, well, you're probably familiar with birch trees from other parts of the world, and it has this beautiful white bark, and you can just peel it off, and it's very smooth and clear and very flexible, and you can bend it and twist it and, and fold it, uh, and it's quite hardy when it's new. When it's 2,000 years old, uh, it's quite a different matter. Uh, so, in fact, you have these uh, rolls which are extremely fragile, and uh, I'll show you examples of them, uh, some more examples later on. But here you see the technicians actually unrolling them very carefully with their little wooden implements. No metal can touch these things. It's considered uh, damaging. Uh, and you can see, I think in this slide, how they come out in, in pieces because these, scroll, these uh, rolls actually were buried, I'll show you later, in a pot and they got squashed down so they were sort of flattened out and so each uh, the edges were all broken so they ended, you end up with a, a stack of separate leaves from what was originally uh, a rolled scroll. So that's what they're doing there. And then this is uh, progress. Uh, so on the left is a close-up of the same photograph that I showed before. Uh, so it's uh, still pretty bad and pretty legible. And on the right uh, is a modern, a, a high-quality color, color digital photograph. Uh, and you can see that now we're uh, ready to um, make some progress uh, with these images. So uh, I've labeled this uh, image the Songs of Lake Anavatapta because that, as it turns out, is the title of the text that's concerned, but I'm, that's a bit jumping ahead because I want to say a few words about how it uh, became clear what this uh, manuscript actually was. Uh, remember, at this stage, we have no idea. Uh, all I know is that these are uh, texts. Uh, I assume they are Buddhist texts because this is a thoroughly Buddhist uh, uh, culture that they come from. Um, 
all we have to go on is one other manuscript of this type, so it could be anything. It turns out to be this, and what that is I'll uh, talk about uh, in a little while. <coughs> so uh, anyway, at this point, I, as soon as I could get uh, a little bit of uh, free time, I flew off to London uh, in December 1994 uh, and began studying and uh, editing, uh, identifying first, editing and eventually translating these scrolls. And, well, to make a long story short, I've been doing that ever since, and probably will be doing it for quite a while yet, if all goes well. Um, and uh, so gradually, it, it became gradually clear uh, that this is a very big job. I, I very much underestimated at the beginning, uh, and uh, I didn't realize that I'd be spending the rest of my professional life on it, and I didn't realize that this was going to involve the help of a great many other persons. This was not a one-person job by any means. Uh, and make a long story short, fast forward to the present, uh, this has become part of a uh, large and on ongoing international uh, enterpri cooperative enterprise uh, being carried out in the USA, in Seattle, uh, in Canada, in Germany, and also in Australia, thanks to Mark, and that's... Uh, why I'm here. Um, just, I don't know, for your amusement, if you're amused, I don't know, uh, this is something I dug up the other day. Uh, you might not have seen this, uh, maybe long ago. Uh, these are my notes from my first three trips to uh, London, uh, not my first, but three of my early trips uh, to London, and there are three stages here. It's a palimpsest, you could say. Uh, the original uh, notes in pencil from July 1995 and then appeared as correction uh, January 9th, 1996. So that's all the crossing out and the rewriting and the comments. And then a third trip in November 1996. At this point, colored ink had been invented. Uh, so I had uh, corrections in, in green and other uh, marks with the yellow highlight pen and so forth. Uh, just for example, to show you the, uh, the kind of fun I was having, this note up here says the right side and then uh, it says the left side and then left is crossed out and says the right side. Um, I'm still getting used to reading the other direction. Uh, the right side of the loop and base of the ga and the diacritic a of the preceding syllable are on a loose chip to the right of line 11. So that's probably not really interesting, but I wanted to say that because that's really, uh, that's what it's all about. Uh, it's the devils in the details, and there are endless details that, well, as I said, we're still working out. Um, it's part of the fun. Um, <coughs> the other exciting thing that uh, awaited me uh, in, at the British Library in London uh, was this clay pot, which was where the manuscripts had originally been found. Uh, this clay, this material is from, I have to say probably from, because there are some uncertainties and clarities, but I'm now uh, totally convinced that it came from a place called Hadda, uh, a city in uh, just in the eastern edge of uh, Afghanistan near the uh, Pakistan border. I'll show you on that in, in a few minutes. Um, and this pot had been apparently buried in uh, a Buddhist monastery, filled with old manuscripts and buried in a Buddhist uh, uh, monastery, in or under or near a Buddhist monastery. Um, 
this part has, although it's not very obvious, but maybe you can at least uh, vaguely make out that there is an inscription uh, on, um, on the part, and uh, it's a brief inscription which just records that this object, the pot, not necessarily the, cont the contents, were uh, a pious donation to, the school, to a monastery belonging to the Dharmaguptaka monks. Dharmaguptaka, not exactly a household name, well, is in my household, but not, probably not in other places, uh, was uh, one of the divisions, sects, or uh, schools, or nikayas of early Buddhism. Uh, there are traditionally were 18 of these uh, schools, uh, of which only one, the Theravada school, has survived into modernity. So uh, Theravada might be a familiar term to some of you, Dharmaguptaka perhaps less so. But that's a really important clue, and then there were features of the uh, manuscript, uh, which I won't go into, it's a little technical, but uh, which confirmed that in fact these belonged to the Dharmaguptaka tradition. Uh, so that uh, gave us a really important clue as to where this material fits in into the bigger picture of the history of Buddhism, which is, in the end, what it's really all about. So uh, this is from a place called Hadda, and finally we get to the map. Uh, this is uh, a map of northeastern India. I hope uh, it's clear to you where we are. Uh, if, uh, if this were a map of all of the Indian subcontinent, it would go down under about there. So this is just a corner. And this is uh, mostly Pakistan here, here, and uh, up on the upper left, I can't reach there, is Afghanistan. So this is the broader uh, cultural realm uh, that I'm going to be talking about. And then more specifically, uh, this uh, green mark uh, indicates the territory uh, known in antiquity as Gandhara. Uh, in and around uh, the center of it is here you, ha I don't know if you can read that, that's Peshawar, the city in northern Pakistan, and that's really geographically and historically the center of Gandhara, and then it uh, became a important cultural region in the period that we're talking about, and had its influence on all these surrounding areas. And then here, the little green circle marks the site of Hudda. It, it's not actually marked on the map, but that's where it should be, and that's 98% uh, certain where these uh, manuscripts originally came from. Um, so the term Gandhara, um, again, it's hard for me to judge. I live in my little weird world, and I don't know how many people actually know that term or not, don't, but I know some do. Uh, but usually it's associated with a very important, very interesting, fascinating, and widely documented school of Buddhist art, uh, which flourished between approximately 1st century BC to about the same period to uh, 3rd or 4th century AD. Um, Gandharan school of art is uh, particularly fascinating to Western scholars uh, because it's a somewhat strange mixture of Western, let's say, or European or Hellenistic artistic styles and Buddhist themes. Uh, and the art historians argue endlessly about how and why that happened. Uh, that's not my purpose to talk about it, uh, but I just wanted to bring that in because I'm sure some of you are familiar with uh, Gandharan sculpture. It's attested in, I would say, every major museum of ancient art in, in, in the world, almost. Um, so uh, this is uh, a, a favorite emblem of what Gandharan art is about and what's special about it uh, because <coughs> this gentleman, this muscular guy, 
could easily be Hercules, and in fact, in a certain sense, he is Hercules, except instead of a club, he has this object, which is a Buddhist symbol called the Vajra, the thunderbolt. So what's happening here is that this guy is uh, uh, iconographically, visually, is Hercules, but in a Buddha, interpreted in Buddhist term as Vajrapani, who is the traditional guardian figure, a kind of guardian spirit who follows the Buddha around and takes care of him. Uh, and Vajrapani means literally he who has a Vajra, this thing in his hand. So you can see that this is uh, the, the iconography. Iconography actually literally labels it as Vajrapani, uh, and yet visually he is Hercules. So very unusual and interesting cultural synthesis. Uh, another side of uh, Gandharan Buddhist art, uh, this is from a, uh, also from Hadda, as was that previous piece, um, the same great cultural center as the manuscripts came from, uh, and this is one of thousands and thousands of these beautiful Buddha statues. Um, I think needs no comment, speaks for itself. Uh, now I come back to my main subject. So now we're looking at the same pot that I showed you a couple of minutes ago, and now we're looking down from the top into it, and you can see that uh, it's filled with very fragmentary, very fragile manuscripts and endless little bits that have to be dealt with and interpreted and drive us crazy. Um, I'd like you to particularly keep your eye on this piece, uh, the one that's lying diagonally across the top, because that's actually my sample piece, and the manuscript that I showed you before, and which I'll show you again, Anavataptagata, uh, Songs of Lake Anavatapta in English uh, is in fact this uh, manuscript. And that's the same manuscript as when it was uh, pulled out of the pot. So here you can see a little more clearly how, how these manuscripts were constructed. Here you can see the edges where it's actually rolled up. Um, one of the reasons, by no means the only reason, but one of the reasons that I choose this as my sample scroll is that it was the best one. Best one, I mean physically best preserved. Why so? Because it was on top of the pile. And when you get, had to go farther down, the manuscripts get more and more decrepit because they were lying for 2,000 years under the weight of the other manuscripts. And at the bottom, it's uh, pretty rough going. Um, even this is uh, by, by far, far from complete. Uh, here, <coughs> you see the same image. Uh, and here is the part of the manuscript when it gets unrolled, when it got unrolled. This is uh, maybe a quarter or less of the complete um, uh, surviving part of the manuscript. Um, this is about, check the numbers, 135 centimeters long, the entire surviving part of this manuscript, about four times as long as that. Uh, that's 60 inches or five feet in my language. Um, and that's, that itself is far from the complete manuscript because uh, for by means of textual comparisons, which I'll mention a little bit later on or briefly, uh, that in fact was that uh, 135 centimeters was only slightly, probably slightly more than half of the original length of the manuscript. Uh, by comparing it to the parallels, which I'll talk about, I estimated that the original, uh, this original scroll was something like 250 centimeters, or uh, which is, I think, eight feet uh, long. Um, and 
That, in turn, was not the entire text. Um, the entire text uh, would have been, uh, again, by comparison with related texts in other languages, in Sanskrit and Chinese and so forth, the uh, entire text would have been three or four scrolls of, uh, of this, approximately this size. So uh, maybe four scrolls of about eight feet long or uh, two and a half meters, whatever that is. Um, so the question is, what happened to the rest of it? Uh, and, well, we know what happened to the top of the scroll, and unfortunately this happens in almost, almost every case with these scrolls. The beginning is missing. Why is the beginning missing? Well, these, scroll, these are long scrolls made up of sheets of birch bark uh, glued together, and they rolled up. When you roll them up, you roll them up from the bottom. So the, the top, which is the beginning of the text, is on the outside. And that's the part that's subject to uh, damage and, and uh, uh, disintegration when they're sitting there for uh, 2,000 years. So we almost never have uh, the beginning of texts, which is uh, somewhat frustrating business. We get typically the middle or sometimes just the end, uh, and sometimes with these very long texts. Um, so then the next topic that I want to talk about, and I thought it might be interesting for some of you to give an idea, get an idea of how we deal with these things, uh, how to identify these texts starting from, from almost nothing. Well, uh, when I was uh, studying this particular manuscript, I noticed that there was a recurrent phrase, which I've mentioned and pointed out here, that every 12 or 15 or 20 lines, there would be the same phrase coming up over and over. And that's the sort of clue that you look for when you're dealing with uh, unknown textual material. Um, you, uh, here, I've taken those two, that recurrent phrase here and here and blown it up. And I think uh, probably you can see without to know the languages, I think you can see that it's uh, in fact uh, the same, fr uh, exactly the same phrase with a slight difference in uh, handwriting. Um, and the reading of this is clear enough. It says, Anodite Mahasare, which means at the great lake Anavatapta. Okay, uh, so that's the clue. Uh, and also, I wanted to point out one other uh, recurrent point. The, after this phrase, each time there's that little circle. Now that little circle is not any of the letters in the Kuroshti alphabet, it's a punctuation <coughs> mark. Uh, so that tells me that this recurrent, this is a kind of refrain that comes up at the end of each uh, section of this text. Uh, and so, so at this time uh, I was, uh, this is still back in 1995 or early 96, I don't remember exactly. Um, and I was uh, pondering this day and night, and I dimly remembered having read years ago a poem about called the Songs of Lake Anavatapta, a poem in, known in a Sanskrit edition from uh, manuscripts from Central Asia. And so it popped into my head one evening that may, that must be what this is, or it should be what it is, and I uh, ran up to the library, got a copy of the Sanskrit text, and uh, it, things started falling in place very close, very quickly. Uh, that we have a previously unknown and older version of this popular text in the Gandhari language. Um, and at this point, um, uh, I, I try to remember whenever I talk about these things at home, my wife says, yeah, but what's it all about? So, uh, so this is what it's all about. 
the Songs of Lake Anavatapta, which turns out to exist in fragments in Sanskrit, complete versions in Tibetan and Chinese, and a partial version in Pali. It's all over uh, Buddhist literature. And what it's about, it's a story that uh, uh, one day uh, the Buddha took his disciples, uh, his 500 disciples, and they all flew away together. These were advanced disciples who who were able to fly and do such things. And they flew up to this lake called Anavatapta, which is in the high Himalayas. Anavatapta means uh, never gets hot because it's so surrounded by high mountains in the Himalayas that the sun never shines on it, so it's always cool. So the Buddha and his disciples uh, came up there, and the two uh, Nagas, or snake guardian spirits of the lake, built these giant lotuses floating around the lake, and everyone sat down on the lake, and the Buddha said, okay, now tell me about your karma. Uh, And because these were enlightened arhats, uh, enlightened beings in a, or purified, perfected beings, uh, they had the power of remembering all their karma. And so each of the disciples, not all 500, but in the literary version, only 32 of them, the 32 most famous disciples, each told what he had done in his past lives going back millions and billions of years, as a result of which they were now sitting here at the feet of the Buddha as as enlightened arhats. And then at the end of the text, the Buddha himself uh, explains uh, what his karma was. Um, And what's interesting about this is there's good karma and bad karma. And even these beings, these enlightened beings, had bad karma. And according to the theory of this text, which is kind of unusual and doesn't agree with all aspects or all opinions in Buddhist philosophy about how karma works. Uh, In this text, there's the idea that even after you've worked off your karma, paid paid your debts, uh, sometimes if you did something really wrong, it it kind of haunts, continues to haunt you. And even when you become uh, a perfected being, an arhat, uh, it can still happen. So this is an example of that, one of the seven surviving stories in that fragmentary manuscript that I showed you uh, about a, a uh, disciple named Nandika who uh, long ago, and when he says long ago, he means literally millions and billions of years and thousands and thousands of lifetimes ago, and there was a famine and he was greedy and he said he didn't want to share his food with uh, with this monk, so he cooked rice in horses' urine, which is apparently produces some kind of terrible poison. I don't know the biological basis of this, but it might be true, and he died. Uh, and so as of the karma, the bad karma of Nandika for, for that greed, went to hell for thousands of years, and then kept dying from hunger. In other words, he had some horrible chronic digestive uh, disease, and so it went on 500 years, and now in my last lifetime, okay, he's a perfected being, and he's never not going to be born again, this is his last life, and he's become a disciple of the Buddha, which is the best thing that can happen, um, but even now I survive on gruel, always sick and dependent on others, in other words he has to eat baby food and, and be taken care of, and has constant stomach problems. So that's uh, just an example of what this uh, text is all about, and it ends not in 
the manuscript that we have, but in the complete versions in other languages, it ends up uh, with this, the Buddha himself as a kind of climax tells about his story. And surprisingly, the Buddha tells about the evil things that he did himself in many lifetimes ago that continue to, um, to cause him pain. So why he gets backaches and sore feet, leftover karma, even the Buddha is the subject. Uh, this is a little more technical, but I thought I'd throw it in for those of you who have some background or interest in, in these kind of languages. Uh, so this is a single verse translation at the bottom. Uh, in the uh, four languages, in Gandhari, Sanskrit, Pali, and Chinese, um, showing the relationships. So for instance, this uh, uh, boldface word is the word for uh, a human being. Uh, in Gandhari Manushe, Sanskrit Manusha, uh, Pali Manusso, uh, actually I think it's not there in, in Chinese, in the Chinese translation. So just to show you the approximate range of relationship that these are pretty close, pretty closely related languages, but definitely distinct languages. Similarly, Kuridapunyu, which corresponds to the phrase done a great deed or something like that, and you have it in Sanskrit and uh, Pali and uh, so in Chinese over here, I didn't underline that, sorry. Um, and, and then this is the final product. Uh, this is the book that I published in 2006. Uh, so it took uh, 12 years. Uh, but those of you who are involved in these kind of work or have sympathy for it understand that you can't pull these things off and under uh, overnight. Uh, thanks for your patience, world. Um, uh, the title of it is Two Gandhari Manuscripts. Well, so far I've only mentioned one Gandhari manuscript. Well, one of the reasons or excuses that it took 12 years is that while I was well along in this project, along comes the Robert Senior Collection. Uh, I, we refer to it as the Senior Collection, but that's because it belongs to a man named Robert Senior, and uh, so you misunderstand. Uh, it's not Senior older, it's just Senior Robert Senior. And uh, this uh, came to light shortly after the manuscripts, the British Library manuscripts I was talking about. Um, and lo and behold, I found in there another partial manuscript of a different part of the same text of the Songs of Lake Anavatapta. Uh, what's going on here is, unfortunately, this is only half, half of the fragment uh, because this is only the right half of a scroll because what they did in antiquity, they would roll these things up, as I described before, and then they'd fold them in half. Um, I'm not sure why, let's imagine sticking, stuffing them in their pocket or in a cubby hole or something. And uh, again, if you play with birch bark, as I sometimes do, you can do with fresh birch bark, you can do that no problem. With 2,000 year old birch bark, uh, when you, that fold in the middle splits and then the other half of this scroll disappeared. We, we don't know what became of it. So uh, that's a bit of a frustration working with that sort of thing, but so it goes. Um, now, uh, going back a little, this is a, a book that I published in 1999. So this was actually the first major publication uh, about this material. Uh, this was a sort of preliminary uh, survey, or we called it the overview volume uh, before we started publishing those black books that I showed you before, the detailed studies of, of particular manuscripts from within this uh, group. Um, 
So um, this was, uh, as I said, published in 1999, um, and it's um, somewhat interesting. Uh, it's a sort of perverse uh, um, amusement in how many things that I said in this book were wrong. Um, that's you got to start somewhere. Um, so, um, uh, for instance, uh, those of you who are familiar with Buddhist literature, you know, the Buddhist canon is called the Tripitaka or similar terms, which means the three baskets, and it's called that because there are three main divisions uh, of canonical literature. There are the sutras or suttas, the sayings of the Buddha. There's the Vinaya, which is the rules of the monastic order, rules of the... Um, Buddhist community, and then there's Abhidharma, uh, which is, or Pali, Abhidhamma, which is philosophy in a, in a loose sense of the term. It's really about textual analysis and interpretation and codification and systematization. So those are the three baskets. Um, in the British Library collection, which turned out only to the, be the beginning, because now we have many, many more groups of manuscripts to deal with. Um, um, the British Library, we had several texts of the Sutra category, several texts of the Abhidharma category, and nothing of the Vinaya. Uh, and I predicted uh, wrongly that there would not be Vinaya texts because uh, Vinaya texts tended to be more, have a more oral uh, uh, function and uh, system of uh, transmission. Um, not I was happy to be proved wrong, not by the senior collection, which I mentioned before was the second big collection, um, and not by the third collection, but some years later, a fourth large group of manuscripts uh, was discovered in Pakistan, uh, and that contained uh, one very important Vinaya text and a few others, a few other fragments of Vinaya texts. So uh, that was... Uh, um, something that I was glad to be corrected on. Uh, the other major misconception in, in this first book was the absence of Mahayana texts. Now, um, Mahayana, I think, might be familiar to um, many of you. Uh, and you don't have to be an expert in Buddhism to know that there are two main outstanding divisions in Buddhist tradition. There's the Mahayana and the other one, which I... I sometimes referred to by the H word, which if you know what I mean, you know what it is, but I don't use it because it's offensive to some people. Uh, call it mainstream or traditional Buddhism or Nikaya Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism. Very roughly, don't hold me to this, uh, Catholic and Protestant. Uh, it's very roughly analogous to that. Um, Mahayana is comparable to Protestant in the sense that it was a, late, uh, a later um, reform or re reformulation of the entire doctrine. Well, there were no Mahayana texts in the uh, British Library collection, um, and uh, I didn't say there never would be, but I didn't expect that there would be Mahayana texts in this Gandhari literature. Um, it turns out there are, um, and uh, the most important well, one of the most important one is this manuscript, which was uh, discovered also in that fourth collection, the Bajor collection, which was full of surprises. Uh, this was a, a manuscript, Gandhari manuscript of what's called in Sanskrit, Paramita. 
in English, the perfection of wisdom, which is, is kind, to put it a little simplistically, kind of the foundational text of Mahayana Buddhism. It's hugely important, uh, and uh, we previously knew many versions of this and, um, and other versions of the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra in Sanskrit, in Chinese, in Tibetan, uh, in many versions. Uh, all of a sudden, here comes a version in Gandhari, which predates and prefigures all of uh, those other later versions. Uh, so without going into the details, you can imagine that this is a very important and uh, exciting uh, development. Uh, and then there are six or seven, Mark, other Mahayana, what's the latest count? Yeah, seven others besides the, uh, other examples of Mahayana texts um, full of exciting stuff. Um, so uh, I see uh, time is running a little short and I'm running a little on. Uh, so I'll, I'll turn to my last uh, topic, which is what's it all about? What do we really know that we didn't know before? Um, if people ask, and people have asked me, uh, does this mean that Buddhism isn't at all what we thought it was, that everything we believed about Buddhism was wrong? No, that's not the case at all. Um, in, in no major way do these discoveries discredit uh, what we, our basic previous understanding of Buddhism. Uh, I would say rather they expand our understanding rather than uh, deny it. Um, <coughs> But um, what, what is there specifically uh, that is uh, new? Well, um, first of all, there are new texts. The text that I talked about at the beginning, the Songs of Lake Anavatapta that I used as my example, uh, was not a new text. And the, the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra was not a new text in the sense that it was previously completely unknown. Both of those texts were known very abundantly in, and were very... Uh, pro uh, um, prominent and popular in Buddhist literature, but what we're getting is early versions that really uh, underlie and precede all of the known, ver known versions. That's one side of the story. The other side is that we have a huge amount of entirely new material, that is, texts that we never had in any other uh, Buddhist language. Um, so uh, one example is this, uh, going back to the British Library Collection, the first known group of manuscripts, um, is an Abhidharma text. Abhidharma, as I mentioned before, was a third of the three baskets. It's textual analysis or uh, hermeneutics in uh, formal language, uh, analysis and systematization of the doctrine, basic doctrines as taught by the Buddha in the Sutra basket. Um, very well represented, as I mentioned, in the uh, British Library collection and also in some of the other subsequently discovered uh, materials. Uh, so that's what it looks like, and this is what it says. Um, those of you who've studied Buddhist philosophy might find this interesting or even comprehensible. Those of you who don't might find it pretty thick going. Um, what is this about? It is not the case that everything exists, nor is it the case that everything does not exist. A fa past factor exists without efficacy. For example, an arhat may have had passion, anger, and delusion in the past, um, etc. Um, very thick going. 
Essentially, this is an argument about the nature of time and the relationship of past, present, and future. Uh, but this issue is conceived in a completely different way than we, if I can say, we, you know, modern people, whoever they are, uh, conceive these things because uh, the notion of time is formulated with and inextricably mixed with the concept of karma, which is maybe the most single most fundamental uh, belief, uh, uh, doctrine of, of Buddhist belief. It underlies everything else. It's the presupposition. Um, and if you think about time in terms of karma, it gets it starts to look very different than from the way it looks to us. Uh, for us, it's pretty clear the past happened, the present is happening, and the future will happen. But if you think that everything that happens is the direct consequence of something that happened before, that's what karma is, the, these concepts uh, uh, mix and merge together. So for example, let's say you or someone did something bad in your previous life or a million years ago, and the karma of that bad deed hasn't happened yet. It hasn't ripened, but it's still there somewhere, and it's going to happen. You never know when. So um, you, know, you might get hit by a car tomorrow, and that might be because of something you did a thousand years ago or a million years ago. Well, until you get hit by the car, was that thing that you did a thousand years ago, is that really in the past or is it in the present? And if it hasn't happened yet, is it in the future? And that's where Buddhists get these very strange ideas to us that um, ultimately they say things like, everything is everything. Uh, it sounds like something from the 1960s, but uh, uh, every, everything exists um, in past, present, and future time. So, that's all I'm going to say now. This text goes on pages and pages um, about the notion of time and d uh, arguing about the proposition that everything exists in all times. Uh, and this is an argument It's going on between one of those 18, I mentioned earlier, there are 18 traditional or uh, not, not Mahayana, but traditional mainstream Buddhist schools. And they fought these things out and had debates and uh, seemed very important. Uh, so this is the sort of new material that we had. Uh, the good news about this text is I don't have to deal with it because I have a colleague who, uh, Professor Cox, known to some of you maybe, uh, who happens to be a specialist in this literature in Abhidharma uh, philosophy and unlike me actually understands this stuff. Um, and uh, it's very important, but it's rough going. And we have tons and tons of uh, this stuff. So it's really giving us a lot of insight into earlier uh, phases of India, of uh, Buddhist philosophy and uh, doctrine. I have one more, uh, and uh, you'll be happy to hear this is my, uh, my last example, and a few more conclusions if you'll bear with me. Uh, this is something quite different, uh, but it's also in the category of things that are entirely new. Uh, texts and even genres of texts, classes of literature uh, that we had uh, really nothing, of, uh, nothing, knew nothing about uh, before this discovery. This is the legend of the black and white magicians. I'll explain what that is in a moment. Um, the, you can see this manuscript is uh, pretty rough going, even by the standards of this kind of material. Um, 
And you can see that there's something wrong with the surface. I mean, besides that the writing is all um, worn out and that it's written rather quickly and casually, not carefully like the other, some of, most of the other manuscripts. Uh, the reason for that is that this is the back. Um, so many of the manuscripts, including the first one that I showed you before, were written only on the recto, that is the front side of the bark. And again, if you can think of birch bark, the front side is beautiful and glaring white when it's fr uh, fresh, beautiful white, uh, clear white color. And the back is a sort of darker mottled color. So what happened was uh, a text was written on the front of this, a formal text, the back was left blank. And then someone, this scribe came along and used it as scrap paper. This is scavenging or recycling. Uh, so he'd take uh, this uh, maybe old ma manuscript that was already old in his time and use it to um, write his uh, material. So this is a very different sort of thing. It's a very informal, uh, casual text rather than formal literary text. This is the translation of the uh, manuscript that you saw before, this messy thing. And um, I, I won't take the time to read the whole thing, uh, but it starts out like a more or less a, a normal comprehensible story in the city of Padliputra, capital of India uh, at the time. Uh, there was a magician and this magician was doing demonic magic, that's what we call black magic. And along comes another magician and he did divine magic, we call that white magic, uh, benevolent magic. And he said, do you wish to see my magic? So there's some sort of competition. And he showed Mount Sumeru, the, the great mountain at the center of the world. And then it says, and the story is to be told at length, up to blah, blah, blah. And then the whole story is to be told at length, according to the model. So this is uh, quite a weird way to tell a story. And it's very typical. And we have dozens and dozens of these kinds of stories that the scavenger guy wrote on the back of other manuscripts. Um, and uh, so, as I said before, these are not formal uh, literary texts. What these things are, and I'm now referring to the work of uh, another one of my colleagues, uh, Timothy Lenz, who's a specialist in this material, uh, and he's interpreted them essentially, and I think very correctly, as uh, somebody's lecture notes, uh, just like I don't write out every word that I'm saying here. I have kind of an outline, and I uh, kind of wing it on the basis of experience uh, for many years. Um, so apparently this guy who uh, Tim thinks is a, what is called avadanika, which basically means a preacher, a storyteller, a guy who tells edifying stories about uh, Buddhist doctrine. Um, and he just sort of sketched it out and uh, just sort of a reminder. And before he went out to preach his stuff, he just look at it, oh yeah, I'll tell this story, this story. Uh, so he very much uh, bridges it. So uh, this material is extremely interesting. Um, it um, somewhat prefigures uh, later Buddhist literature, uh, genres of later Buddhist literature, but it's absolutely not what we would have expected. And a lot of the material, not this one, but a lot of them are very specifically about Gandhara, about this region, and talking about uh, historical figures of um, of that region, historic figures whom we knew about before from old inscriptions and coins and so forth. Uh, so here we're getting a very specific uh, body of local literature that was previously uh, un un unheard of, really. Um, 
Which brings me to my last point, uh, which is the bigger picture of how all of this uh, changes what we know or think about Buddhism. I mean, the smaller picture, which I've been talking about the last few minutes, is it tells us about kinds of uh, texts and even genres of literature we didn't know about before. Um, but it's uh, on a broader picture, it tells us something or it hints to us something about the nature of Buddhist literature more broadly. Um, I refer to a, a very prominent uh, Buddhist scholar named Peter Skilling, who I believe gave a, uh, yes, uh, did he give a Sydney Ideas lecture some, some years ago? Uh, so maybe some of you met him or, <coughs> or heard him. Uh, Peter uses his phrase, many Buddhisms, uh, which I've picked up on and I find extremely appropriate to the new picture of Buddhism. What people generally know about Buddhism from modern study uh, is based on Buddhism as presented by a certain small number of dominant schools or traditions. Uh, this is basically the principle known to everyone that history is written by the winners. What many Buddhisms mean is that there were, were in antiquity and you know, through the centuries and millennia, there were many more Buddhisms than the X number, eight or 10 or 12, uh, or however you count it, of uh, schools of Buddhism that uh, flourish uh, today. So um, we can extrapolate, or I, I should say I am inclined to extrapolate from the lesson of the, uh, the Gandharan manuscripts that um, this was what we have here. Uh, well, the Gandharan material itself is the tip of an iceberg. I mean, we have literally hundreds of documents, most of them very fragmentary, of this literature. The whole literature, I think, must have been very much more than that. There must have been thousands of books, texts, and manuscripts. So it's the tip of an iceberg, uh, but it's a new iceberg. But what I've come to imagine following Peter Skilling's idea is that this didn't just happen in Gandhara. Gandhara was, of course, a very important, a prominent center of Buddhism at the time, but it was far from the only one. Um, and for certain reasons, and not coincidence, for discernible or explainable reasons, the Gandharan material is the one that survives. Why? Very briefly, two reasons. Um, the climate of Gandhara is uh, quite different from the climate of uh, uh, of the most of the Indian subcontinent. Uh, basically, it's beyond the range of the monsoon climate, and the monsoon climate is extremely damaging, <coughs> excuse me, to virtually all organic uh, materials. Uh, I know it was damaging to my organic material when I lived in India years ago. Um, and uh, so manuscripts which were written on birch bark or palm leaf or other organic materials uh, rarely last more than a century to, or two in India proper. Um, in Gandhara, the climate is relatively more temperate and, and moderate, uh, so it's, there's even the possibility of things to last. Uh, the other reason that Gandhara comes, Gandharan literature comes down to us is um, that the uh, monks in Gandhara had the custom of actually burying manuscripts. And what we know pretty clearly from archaeology is that they did the same thing to old manuscripts that they did to old monks. Old monks died, their bodies were burned, and their ashes or bone fragments would be put in a pot and buried in the ground. And manuscripts are, in Buddhist belief, are analogous to monks. They are dharma dharas, they're bearers of the dharma. So they get disposed in the same way and they get put in 
pots. The pot is sealed up with wax and buried underground. And uh, so for that reason, as well as for the climatic factor, the Gandharan materials, some of them have survived uh, into modern times. But it's just um, an incidental uh, factor. So I now imagine that there were many, I wouldn't say how many, but many centers of Buddhist uh, learning and manuscript production and book production in ancient India, analogous to um, the Gandharan material, I think I'll have to say flat out, they will never be found. There's no chance that these others will be found, but there's every reason to think that they uh, existed. So uh, now I think of you know, the Gandharan material as an iceberg of which we have just the tip, and, but Buddhism as an ocean, and there were once many other icebergs, but they've all melted away. So just extrapolating from the, um, uh, from the Gandharan experience, uh, I think that uh, Peter Skilling's notion of many Buddhisms, many more Buddhisms than we actually know about, uh, must have uh, once existed. Last point, and I thank you for your patience. Uh, we're a little behind schedule. <coughs> um, obviously not the end of the story. What remains to be done? Well, a lot, uh, but two things. One is that um, the number of manuscripts, of the known manuscripts that have been comprehensively studied is still uh, a minority, and uh, I and my colleagues and Mark are working away at this and uh, uh, publishing as, as fast as we can. Um, but I, we also know, suspect, and in some cases know that there's more out there. There are manuscripts of this type uh, in private hands, some of which have not been uh, made available to scholars for publication, which is uh, a matter of considerable frustration, but uh, maybe something can be, uh, can be worked out. Um, so stay tuned. Uh, there's much more to be done, and uh, time will tell what comes of it all. So. Thank you for your attention.